On today's episode, Understanding Your Recovery Pyramid with Shona Halson. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I'm a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. to bring you this episode today. Shona is a uh, big guru, I'll call her, in Australia and around the world when it comes to recovery. She is an associate professor at the oh, in the School of Behavioral and Health Sciences at ACU, Australian Catholic University. She has been involved in several web- webinars and interviews that I have paid attention to for a long time now. I am a big fan and I usually don't get nervous when it comes to interviewing. I did at the start of my podcast career. Now I'm just excited. But when Shona came on, I did get a little bit, um, I was a little bit nervous at the start. I did fumble through her name. I said um, Shona Holson instead of Halson, which um, isn't a big deal. But then I actually fumbled uh, the name of my podcast and the Run Starter podcast would be uh, an interesting name, <laughs> but um, I did fumble my way through that due to the nerves, but quickly calmed my senses, got into the rhythm of things, and we just uh, went nuts with some valuable, valuable content. In one of the webinars she um, that I attended, well, now it's probably a couple of months ago, she talked about the recovery pyramid and really thought it was a fascinating topic, fascinating concept, and perfect for our recovery theme. So I hope you enjoy. Um, I have a big announcement before we do our interview. We have a Run Smarter app now, which uh, has several things. It has my blogs, it has my online courses, it has my podcast episodes. All the podcast episodes are housed in neat sort of categories for you to... um, for you to kind of navigate through and find what's most relevant for you. We're approaching 100 episodes now, and I think, I don't know how many blogs I've got, maybe 150. There's a lot of content there, and it's very hard for someone just to discover the podcast and say, where do I start? What do I look through? And so this is perfect. You download the Run Smarter app, just search Run Smarter app wherever. Uh, Well, it's now on Android, had a couple of issues with Android, but (laughs) as of this morning, it is now good to go. It is on iOS and it's also available as a website, which I would put up. And that's where um, through the website is where you can also apply to become a patron. And yeah, so you've got the pretty much all the content for you to become a smarter runner. It's the the podcast, it's the app form of the podcast with, with a lot more visual components if you need it. You can read, you can watch, you can listen. And I do have a lot of content and the fact that it's housed into neat little categories makes a better experience. I hope it's a better experience for you. And yeah, without further ado, Let's bring on Dr. Shona Halson. Associate Professor Shona Halson, thank you very much for joining the Run Starter, the Run Smarter podcast. Thanks, Brody. Thanks for the invitation. You're very welcome. I will start by saying that later in, um, I'm preparing for an interview with um, Christy Ashwanden, and Ooh. she is the mm-hmm. author of Good to Go. I was reading her book, and a lot of the papers and a lot of the science that she references 
is a lot of your uh, a lot of your work. And I'm like, oh, thank God I'm actually interviewing Shona <laughs> as well. And I was I had an interview with um, Izzy Smith uh, yesterday, actually, and she was like, if you have a topic around recovery, you need to interview Shona. And I'm like, I'm interviewing her tomorrow. This is awesome. So you're very highly regarded right. and around the world. So I'm pumped to have you on today. Thank um, you. Can we just start off with your a, a brief summary of your background and the the athletes you've been working with? And uh, yeah, let's dive in that way. Yeah. So uh, probably most relevant, I did my PhD a number of years ago. Um, 2002, I finished, uh, and I did that in the in Birmingham, um, in the UK, with um, Professor Asker Yukendrop, who might be familiar to to a few people. Is uh, he's a bit of an expert, a lot of an expert in um, the nutrition space. Um, and so that research was in overtraining. So I was really interested in you know fatigue and can you train too much? And and then a job came up. It was advertised at the Institute of Sport, um, and it was in fatigue and recovery. And I was like, that sounds fantastic um, and was fortunate enough to get that job and spent about 16 years um, at the Institute, which was, you know, my role was sort of servicing. So working directly with athletes, um, doing some research, of course. Um, and as well as part of that, I uh, went to three Olympics um, to head up the um, Australian Olympic teams recovery area. So that was that was awesome. Uh, and then now I've moved on into um into research uh, predominantly I'm at Australian Catholic University so do a lot of sleep research and some recovery research but they're great uh, in terms of allowing me to still do some um, work with with elite athletes in the last couple of years I've, I worked with uh, the US women's national team in the lead up to the World Cup so that was awesome um, they're wow. a great team to work with um, and yeah just different different sports and different um uh, some NFL teams and NBA teams in, in the past, as well as, you know, some AFL, NRL, um, rugby uh, union as well over the, over the last couple of years. So, uh, yeah, which is great because, I, you know, the research is, is interesting and I find that fascinating to get, you know, we want to understand how things work and so we can make things better, but it's the translation into practice and, and having people actually, you know, using these, um, using these techniques and these strategies, that's the, that's the really interesting stuff for me. Unreal. And it sounds like you've worked with so many super elites and I did listen to your webinar um, a couple of weeks ago. Oh, and yes. when yeah. you're going through the webinar, I'm just like, she's worked with so many people and like the, the level is just intense. However, like a lot of the listeners are, they listen to the podcast, they are recreational runners. However, mm -hmm. they're training for marathons and they're doing ultras as well. Yeah. And so uh, recovery should be super, super important for a lot of them. And I wanted to start by discussing like within that webinar, you discussed the recovery pyramid and mm -hmm. uh, I guess we can start by just describing just like a brief summary of what that the recovery pyramid actually is. And then we can mm -hmm. delve a bit deeper into certain aspects of it as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, as you say, you know, the recreational uh, athlete, I think, you know, there's times when I think that they need more recovery than, you know, than some of our elite athletes. And because people have very different challenges when you're trying to, to work, um, you don't have that recovery time during the day. Most people can't take a nap when they want. Um, so there's a lot of challenges, I think, around being a recreational athlete and just balancing everything. And I think, you know, recovery is obviously, you know, one of those things that can really help with that balance in in terms of training work etc so um, I think you know the pyramid even though you know I originally designed it with work with you know with elite athletes there's many of those things and, and the principles um, apply to the recreational athletes so the you know the idea around the pyramid is that the base of the pyramid is the most important things and the things you need to really get right before you start adding you know extra strategies to the to the top of the pyramid so you know we kind of call that like the icing on the cake you know you got to bake the cake properly first and then you put the icing and then you put the sprinkles so you know the base of that um, pyramid for me the most important thing and you know maybe I'm biased dietitians might argue that it's nutrition I sort of believe that it's sleep um, but I feel uh, that you know sleep and mental recovery and some downtime uh, is the, the base of the pyramid and part of the reason why I think that's important is because the length of time that we actually spend asleep uh, so you know we're supposed to spend a third of our lives asleep so uh, that means that it's something that's very important. And so for me, that's the, the base of the pyramid. Uh, next up, we'll do look at things like nutrition. 
Um, and we know obviously that nutrition is really important and from a recovery perspective and a fatigue perspective we want to make sure that getting adequate nutrition and hydration and then you probably move on to some of the other um, maybe more optional strategies or some things that um, obviously the elites put in um, but I think can be important for the recreational athlete in terms of um, just getting some extra recovery where they need it so things like compression garments massage if you can access it and water immersion they're probably the next three that that i would pay attention to but for me really it's around you know those things are all good you know compression massage you know ice baths or water immersion or, or whatever you might be able to do but there's no point really in doing those unless you've nailed the bottom of the pyramid so you know it's all well and good to wear compression garments for 60 minutes but if you're not sleeping and you're not eating it's probably not going to do you do you much uh, benefit so yeah for me I think get that bottom of that pyramid right and if that's all you can do um, as a recreational athlete who's really busy if that's all you can do is prioritize getting a half hour an hour exercise sorry half an hour extra sleep then that's something that I would prioritize over, you know, say compression garments or get jumping into an ice bath or something like that. Okay. I think it is clear that people do get that message. I know a lot of people head for the top of the pyramid, which is all like the little fads, which we'll discuss in a second without getting the base right. And we will have, we will be discussing sleep and discuss discussing nutrition on other episodes of this recovery Mm -hmm. month. So, I wanted to delve into other topics, but before we do, you do have this base pyramid as sleep and also downtime, which I think is really important to highlight as well. And someone might not be sleeping too well. Maybe it's like out of their control. Maybe they've got like a um, waking baby or, you know, maybe stress might be keeping them up. Can you just highlight the importance of downtime as well as sleep and separating the two? Yeah. So I I sort of use downtime as a bit of a, you know, a word that for something, description for something that most people kind of understand. But I guess the more technical term would be um, recovering mentally. Um, So because what we are now starting to understand is that people can get very mentally fatigued and that's different from being physically fatigued. Um, And so what we want to do is try to get to try to reduce some of that mental fatigue. And that can come from being stressed and being super busy at work, um, can be caused by lots of things. In athletes, often what we see is we see that they're physically kind of recovered okay, but mentally they're really drained. Um, And that might be from a long season, a lot of travel, a lot of stress, whatever it might be. So, So for us, that downtime is really relating to just having some time without you know there's no physical exercise you may not be sleeping but you're just resting um and i think what happens a lot especially in today's society is we are so connected whether that's you know social media phones you know netflix you know whatever it might be we've got lots of stimulation we've got lots of connections and downtime you know for some it might be just watching you know something mindless on the tv um but it's just that that period of time where you can sort of um, just be a little bit distracted from the world, um, a, a stress-free period, a relaxing period, um, because obviously we know the brain and the body are you know, so well connected and we tend to spend all our time thinking about recovering the body, but we also need to think about recovering in the brain and making sure that we're fresh um, as we can be from a, um, from a mental perspective perspective so that's where this kind of downtime and for some people it might be meditation it might be relaxation it might be you know whatever it is that helps people relax and kind of switch off a little bit it's nice to hear the same advice come from different professionals as well and when i spoke to izzy smith yesterday she was talking about uh, the hormones within the body and realizing that physical stress and psychological stress Uh, the same hormones are released and almost like the body doesn't really know the difference when it comes to recovery. You're still having those Mm -hmm. same hormones that cortisol, noradrenaline circulating through the body. And when you're, she explains like having this stress cup, you want to recover from the stress, but the physical stress Mm -hmm. and the psychological, emotional stress kind of fills up that same cup. So very good being very mindful relaxing and kind of just unwinding a lot in a way is very good for recovery. 
Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, people just think, you know, if you're not busy, you're lazy or, you know, we're in these, you know, in modern society, we've got so much on, we're doing so much, but just to take, even if it's half an hour for yourself, I think that's, um, that's really important. Okay. So we have the importance of sleep and downtime. We have the importance of nutrition. We're going to realize the importance of those, but skip them at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I want to dive into water immersion and just talk Mm -hmm. about exactly what that is and what the benefits are with water immersion. Yeah. So we typically think of about four different types of water immersion. So we have cold water, which is your typical, what we think of as an ice bath, hot water, which we think of as like a spa bath. We have contrast, which is where you alternate between the hot and the cold. And then you have kind of pool recovery or beach recovery where you're sort of more active um, in a thermo, sort of neutral type water temperature. So one of the interesting things, you know, dating back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years is that we, um, people used to use water hydrotherapy as a treatment for lots of different illnesses. But then of course, what happens is, you know, we created, you know, people invented medications um, and we sort of moved away from, um, from hydrotherapy, but water was really used as a, as a treatment for lots of things. Um, so some of the mechanisms around how these water strategies work is obviously there's a temperature effect. Um, and so cooling the body down, especially in warm conditions, can be really helpful to speed up the recovery process. And um, we know there's a hydrostatic um, pressure effect of being in water. So the, the simplest way that I usually describe it is if you're wearing compression garments, um, the pressure is measured in the same way that you measure blood pressure in terms of the, the units. So it's millimetres of mercury. Um, so so um, compression garments are about 20 millimetres of mercury pressure at the ankle. If you're six foot tall and you're standing in water, that's about 150 millimeters of mercury pressure at the ankle so when you're in water there's a lot of hydrostatic pressure and what that does is it moves the fluid around um it's often why you need to go to the bathroom when you hop in water uh, because it has a powerful effect on the kidneys um, but essentially you've got a combination of these temperature and hydrostatic pressure effects um, that um, can be useful for blood flow you know register redistributing blood flow um, for cooling the body down etc so they're kind of the, the two main mechanisms but also I mean you know I live in Queensland grew up in Queensland and you know you go for you do some exercise outside and you go for a run and you know if you can you're hot and it's uncomfortable if you can get in a pool um, or you can get in a beach uh, most people know it's a you know, it's a pretty nice thing. It feels nice. Um, so that cool, the body doesn't like being hot um, in terms of, you know, having really high core temperatures. So cooling the body down just feels nice. So there's also some interesting um, uh, research and some theories around water immersion, as, um, especially the cold water that it can actually, um, it, it, it does change some hormones in the, and some neurotransmitters in the brain, especially in the feel good areas of the brain. So I think there's a whole other area of of you know how it helps you feel and reducing soreness and those kinds of things as well okay right there's a a few things to unpack there if we're talking about go trying to cool down the body and aiding that recovery yes you say it feels nice Mm -hmm. if we're talking about uh circulating like blood circulation does cooling the body down help with circulation and removing Mm -hmm. um, a lot of that the fluid yeah, so what we we do know is that um, when you hop in cold water in particular, what happens is um, the blood flow goes to the core to protect the vital organs. So obviously you want to protect your heart and lungs and, you know, all the important the important bits. Um, so that's why your hands and feet get really cold, right? Because all the all the blood's going to the core. Um, so f- sometimes when you're actually in, say, an ice bath, and you when we measure people's core temperature, the core temperature doesn't often change that much when they're in the bath because they're only they're only in there for you know usually less than 15, 20 minutes. But what happens is when you get out of that bath, of course, all the blood flow goes back to your hands and feet. Um, And so that's when you get this shift in temperature, your body, your core temperature lowers, um, and you also um, get this shift in in blood flow. Um, And so that in itself can obviously help in terms of removing 
metabolic waste products, etc. We know that moving from hot to cold. So obviously you're getting really powerful shifts there from, again, being in cold water, having the blood flow be, um, you know, directed to the core to keep you warm in the cold and then you hop in the hot and, you know, people often get pins and needles and funny sensations in the periphery when they do that because it's such a shock. Um, but yeah, it's that blood flow change um, that, that that's happening when you go from that from the hot to cold as well. Okay. And for active recovery, like beach and pool, just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign up link is in the show notes. So fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow stuff when you're moving as well mm-hmm. as getting the the benefits of water immersion does mm-hmm. temperature matter yeah look that's it is an interesting um question because if you think of your skin temperature normally about 34 degrees most of the time most water that you get in is going to be colder than that so you'll eventually kind of cool down to to some extent but for me the benefits of you know jumping in a pool or getting down to the beach is more about being a bit more active stretching working through some soreness so that's why you do see a lot of the you know the professional team sport athletes um, you know the AFL guys down at the beach the following day so they're starting to work you know they're sore they're beaten up um, they're, they're starting to do some of that more active work and being in a water and being weights of body weight supported so you don't have impact with the ground because you're supported that can be a really nice um more passive way of helping you, you, you know, you could, you'd go for a run, you know, and that, that'd obviously get you moving again. Um, but, you know, if you do that in water and your, your body weight's a bit more supported and there's less chance of obviously doing damage and, um, you know, adding any more muscle damage to it. So um, the, the, you know, sometimes you look and you think, what are these crazy guys doing in a pool or down the beach? But, you know, there's, there's a bit of evidence there to suggest that it's a nice way of moving through the soreness. You know, you don't, you can imagine if you've, you know, been tackled and you know you've been running you know 10 to 15 k's in a game and then you just sit for you know the next day you know you you can imagine you're going to be pretty sore so doing some of that movement um in water is a is a nice um a nice approach cool and for runners who want like some practical numbers and things Mm -hmm. to focus on the amount of time that you're in the water or the amount of time that you're doing this act of recovery does that matter as well yeah, in terms of active recovery, like if you're at a pool or a beach, it's the timings probably, you know, you probably want to go for about half an hour to really make sure that you're you're getting a full body stretch and doing some, you know, doing some being act, being relatively active without, you know, pushing yourself too hard because it's recovery. You know, I think 20 to 30 minutes is probably a, you know, a reasonable time frame if you're going to be in the um, the the beach or the pool. Pools are obviously much easier in terms of you know, the, the, you've got a flat ground at the bottom, you don't have waves to deal with, you know, you can sort of do a more structured session. Um, but of course, you know, if you can get to the beach, you know, what a great place if you're fortunate enough to be able to get in and um, and do some active work in the beach. It just can be a little bit more challenging to do things, you know, in a proper strict way when you're down the beach. Okay. And when it comes to like the, well, I, I guess we can, move on because that was a very good practical answer if we're talking about moving higher up in the pyramid we had water immersion as kind of like the third level then we moved up to compression active recovery and stretching Mm -hmm. can we dive into compression and are we talking like the the leggings like skins that you can buy are we talking more medical grade higher level compressions and what is that achieving yeah. So there's probably three different areas when we say compression, what we really mean. So you're right, there's a medical grade compression, there's compression garments, so clothing, um, so your tights typically are the most common, and then you have pneumatic compression which is like normatec or recovery pump or you know the devices where you put the legs on and you plug them in and they um, get very high amounts of pressure in those so when it comes to so the first level of compression which is medical grade there's typically the socks that you would that that we um that we see and they're the sorts of things that we more recommend for flying 
Um, so obviously not happening so much now in the COVID world. But um, in terms of long haul travel, the goal is we want to prevent deep vein thrombosis. We want to prevent you know, risks of any clots. Um, and so the medical grade compression, they have the foot in it. We know that you know they're not going to cut off circulation at the ankle like some tights can do. Um, they're designed with the right amount of pressure in them um, to optimise blood flow. So when I'm dealing with athletes and we're talking travel, um, and it's the same for, you know, re recreational athletes, it's the same for the general, pub general public. If you're travelling and you want to minimise the risk of deep vein thrombosis, um, compression socks from a medical perspective are your go-tos. Um, when it comes to general recovery, uh, compression garments, so you know, two times you, those kinds of um, kinds of companies, there's lots out there now, um, they're recommended, you know, we sort of recommend to wear them for about 60 minutes um, after you've exercised. What we know from the science, and there's actually a fairly large amount of research out there, uh, what we know is, and the research is really variable, so it's super hard to come up with good, easy solutions and, and practical recommendations, but we know they definitely help in terms of reducing soreness. So there's a really strong perceptual effect. Um, we've got some evidence that they can help you with repeat performance. So they potentially help from a blood flow recovery point of view if you've got to perform again or train again within half an hour. And there's some evidence around that um, compression garments decrease that muscle oscillation or muscle wobble. So um, we've, we did a study at the Institute where we set up Vicons and fancy cameras and we looked at tiny movements in the muscle when people were running and jumping and as you can imagine the compression garments keep the muscle really tight um, so there's not as much movement and maybe that could lead to less soreness you know we don't really know what the ramifications are just yet but so there's a few ways in terms of compression garments working but the most common one is is around blood flow and especially if you're standing for long periods of time um you want to make sure in the, in the recovery period you want to make sure that you're getting that blood flow back um you know back from the from the um, extremities okay uh, so if someone goes for a run let's just say they've they're training for a marathon they do their weekend long run and they have to spend the rest of the day on their feet, moving around after that long run. So I guess that's kind of staying active. Would you mm -hmm. recommend them wear some like garments to aid with blood flow during the rest of the day? If they're standing for long periods, if that's part of people's work, I think they can definitely help. I think one of the things we have to consider though, is that, they can, you know, compression tights can be one, they're warm. They can make you, you know, high temperature. So, that, you know, if you have to wear them under a long pair of pants or something, then it's probably, you know, can get, be too warm for some people. And they can get uncomfortable if you're wearing them from a long, for a long period of time. Because, you know, the recommendation is when you go into a shop to buy, you know, you go to Rebel Sport, you want to buy yourself some two times U gear, you put on the smallest pair that you can physically get into. It's like when women buy jeans, right? Get into the <laughs> smallest pair you can get into and, uh, and you know, they'll give a little bit, right? So you just, if you get them on, they're good. Um, and so what happens then, however, is that they can be a little bit uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, where, if you could, if, you know, if, if someone's gone out for a hard run and they know they're probably going to have a bit of soreness the next day, because that's just, you know, you know that that's probably going to happen. If you could wear some compression tights for about an hour, uh, afterwards, it's probably going to be um, be beneficial in terms of just that soreness that, that builds up. Yeah, great. I wanted to pick your brain a little bit around stretching and massage because I mm. have done episodes in the past around stretching, mm. and I have had massage therapists on the past in the past talking about these sort of things. And yep. I wanted to kind of let you know where I'm at with these mm -hmm. topics, and I'd love your input in terms of if you want to add anything or tell me mm -hmm. I'm wrong or something, but <laughs> the, the stuff I have researched regarding stretching and recovery is that it doesn't do a whole lot to help with delayed onset muscle soreness or um, to actually help the physical recovery. I do highly recommend that if it feels good for people, they definitely do it. So if mm -hmm. it feels good to unwind, if it feels good for the muscles and similar to massage, there's not a lot of evidence that it helps circulation like blood circulation mm -hmm. in the body mm -hmm. it doesn't do a whole lot for well we don't know that it does a lot for like releasing you're not really 
releasing mm-hmm. knots or you're not really doing mm-hmm. much physical to the muscle, but where the benefits do really come in. And I think the, the benefits with stretching as well is the psychological benefits of unwinding of, you know, mentally mm-hmm. settling down of the feeling that you are drawing your attention towards recovery. Like these kind of aspects can have real true benefits towards recovery. Uh, mm. Let's start with stretching. What, where mm. are you at with restretching with stretching when it comes to recovery for the muscles? Do, have I outspoken? Do you disagree? Do you agree? Where are we at? No, no, look, I agree. And it's one of the really interesting areas because it's something that everyone does, right? You know, in terms of, you know, everyone just, well, most people finish, have a bit of a stretch. Um, now, the, this, you're exactly right. The science just doesn't really support stretching from a recovery, purely recovery perspective. Obviously, if you're on increased range of motion or, you know, anything like that, or you want to warm up for, you know, if you're a gymnast and you want to warm up, right, you're going to stretch. Um, but in terms of pure recovery and the benefits there in terms of, you know, performance and recovering the muscle, um, it, there's, there's, it, it, and it's more that there's, it hasn't been researched much, you know, there's a, but the evidence, the research that has been done, you're exactly right, suggests that there's probably not a lot of benefits, but I certainly know there's a lot of, um, a lot of athletes who feel like stretching in the recovery period does help them, whether it's psychologically, psychological or not, but um, it can help them, especially if they're, you know they feel like they've always got you know it's nice feels like you know if they stretch their glutes then you know they're less stiff and sore there the next day if they you know if they stretch their hamstrings they might be a little less sore the next day so there's certainly a large number of athletes out there that feel like and we don't have this in the science but they feel like stretching may be of benefit to soreness um, especially those who may have areas of tightness or weakness or whatever it might be so but yeah from a pure you should stretch to enhance your recovery. So, you know, we think of recovery as your ability to back up. Um, if you're, um, if you want to do a run one day and a run the next day, in terms of performance, there's no reason why you do, you, you'd stretch. But maybe if you're someone who finds that they get tight or areas of soreness or whatever it might be, and it just makes you feel better, um, then, you know, it certainly wouldn't be something where stretching is sort of harmless, uh, sorry, harmful, um, but it's, yeah, there's the, the science is not very strong in that area. So, yes, I do agree with you on that one. Okay. I do, I do think that, you know, muscles get sore and let's just say you've had a hard running session and the next day your hamstrings do get sore, your glutes do get sore. It, it almost creates a perception like they are tight because when you stretch it, it gets, it feels sore feels, when you stretch. Yes. Therefore it must be tight. Therefore must I need to stretch. Um, and yeah. it feels good. Everyone's experienced it when they have these muscle soreness. I know if I do chest press at the gym and my pecs get really sore, I, just, I stretch all day just because I just yeah. want to feel something. I want to feel some sort of relief through that area. So I, yeah. I agree that definitely there's the, the feeling that it is doing something and I highly recommend people do it if they feel like they're um, if they feel like they are getting some benefit. But yeah. again, the, the topic around this pyramid, we want to make sure that we're ticking the boxes of all the other recovery, the high, the high end recovery stuff. And I guess not convincing yes. ourselves of actually like the power, the power that it has. Um, how about, mm. how about massage? Can we dive into that a little bit? Mm. Yeah. And again, totally agree with you in terms of the most of the research you know everyone said you know it was all about clearing lactate and getting the blood flow we know that doesn't happen plus we also know if you want to clear lactate and you want to increase your blood flow do an active recovery do a light you know a low intensity warm down that's going to clear lactate pretty quick um the other thing is the body's pretty good at clearing lactate itself without doing anything (laughs) um so when we have people talk about recovery strategies to enhance lactate clearance, for most people, it's not important um, because, you know, most people aren't performing again within 30 minutes or, or an hour. So um, from a massage perspective, exactly, you know, it doesn't, it's not going to really influence your blood flow at all. Um, there is something about um you know, so there's, there's definitely strong psychological benefits and not just in sport, 
you know, massage in general. Uh, there's some evidence around the release of, um, you know, some, some nice hormones that make you feel good, you know, the power of touch, all that kind of stuff. And there is some good science. It's not, not woo-woo in that area. There's actually um, some good science. Um, but, you know, in terms of increasing blood flow, very little um, information. And when it comes to, there was a systematic review that came out a couple of years ago where they analysed all the research and basically found that, um, you know, from a performance perspective, yeah, there's really nothing there um, unless, you know, you're performing again within 10 minutes. Um, so, the, yeah, massage was really not supported as a pure recovery strategy. Um, having said that, though, there's some um, interesting research out of um, a guy called Thomas Best's uh, lab, and he does some really um, interesting, he started off doing some animal model work, but also does some, some human work and looking at um, vibration, but also potentially massage in terms of muscle recovery and healing from damaged muscles. Um, and that's a bit of a stretch at the moment, um, but there's some really interesting stuff coming out there. So it's a bit of a watch this space, I think. But, um, you know, I think massage, you know, gosh, I, I'd, I'd have one, you know, once a week if I could, right? Um, so it does it does feel good. And so as, as we say, you know, we like people to have some, some downtime and some find some me time. And one of the things I love about massages is for most people you don't take your phone with you so it is that real time where you you know, where you're uh you you're not uh you're not staring at the staring at your screen for an hour or so i guess uh you can say that massage is can be a substitute for your downtime like we talked at the start like the downtime is at the very base of the pyramid that's what we want to care about mm -hmm. the most so if you're using massage as a tool for downtime then you're utilizing it the best way possible yeah, exactly. And I get asked a lot about flotation tanks. Um, so if anyone doesn't know what they are, um, they're just like a big tank full of water, skin temperature water. It's dark. Um, it's got lots of salt in it. So you float. So it's really this, you know, you've, it's sensory deprivation. So, um, and it's really relaxing. Once you get used to it, it's a bit of a weird, con you know, it feels weird when you first do it, right? but it's really relaxing. It's warm, it's quiet, you're in water and, you know, there's, there's a little bit of science about, you know, how it works and certainly for, yes, for relaxation, not much in athletes. But the thing I love about it is you definitely cannot take your phone in there. Like if you drop your phone in that salty water, it is not coming <laughs> back. Um, and so for people, people off, and athletes often sleep in there. And part of the reason they sleep is because they're sleep deprived um, and they're super relaxed and they're not on their phone. And so when you got to think obviously about, as you were saying with massage, there may be other ways that these things are adding to our recovery and floating in a float tank for 45 minutes to an hour um, might be a really good way of just having your your downtime not super practical for everyone and expensive but for athletes i'm like yeah let's not think about you know what's what it's doing to blood flow and what it's doing to muscle recovery let's just think about here's an hour that they actually get to themselves um where they're not bombarded with a, a stack of information yeah great let's go through some listener q a we had rusty submit his question he asks uh what are your what are some recommendations for active recovery routines after a long run. And I'm happy if you repeat some of what we've just discussed. Mm. Uh, if you have another yep. answer, then we'll go through that. Yeah, so it, I guess it's a, it depends on what, you, what you've got access to. You know, for some people, active recovery might just be walking, you know, something low intensity. Um, it might be, you know, getting on a stationary bike. You know, some people don't like stationary bikes because you're sort of in a sitting position and, you know, hip flexors and all that stuff. But, you know, a stationary bike is, you know, obviously very low impact. Um, getting in the pool, um, uh, getting in the, in the beach or, or something like that. So anything that's low intensity, the more sort of off legs, if possible, can be good. But you just want to get a little bit of that sort of blood flowing and a little bit of movement. But you don't want to add any more fatigue um, or use any more fuel than you really need to. And, and just as a, a bit of a sidebar, you know, if anyone who's um, ever worked with swimmers or, you know, even sees people, you know, swim competitions, they do active recoveries and warm, I mean, warm-up's one thing, but their active recovery, their swim down, you know, when you add up how much they do, if they're racing two or three times a day over five or six days, I mean, they're using a lot of fuel. 
Um, and, you know, how much extra fatigue are they adding? So my things around an active recovery is just do something short, something that is, you know, low intensity um, where you feel like you've got your breath back, especially if you've had a hard session um, and it just helps you sort of wind down from the, from the session. Okay. And on say non-running days where you're like, okay, today is a rest day, but they still want to stay active. Is there Mm -hmm. a way to gauge how long they should be training for or at what intensity Mm. they should be training at? Yeah, look, that's really difficult. Uh, It's completely dependent on, you know, how fit someone is, how much training they're actually doing, um, what type of exercise or type of training they're doing. And look, I think the thing that, um, I think about is and it's sort of related to my last response is you know easy days are supposed to be easy days um and so making sure that um you know they're they're low low intensity you're not you know doing too much um you're just doing it doing a little bit just to feel good and be out there moving and I think one thing that people can do is um and in, I know a lot of recreational runners tend to, because to trying to get in there, it, you know, we're trying to get a routine and a pattern, tend to do some similar sessions. Um, not all the time, but, you know, Wednesday might be the same session or, or something like that. And so what I like to do is just to sort of get people to think about, you know, this is what I did on my off day or my rest day on my easy day, and this is how I felt the next day. Um, and if you kind of, if the next day you think, oh, I don't feel so good, I'm a bit flat, or I'm actually a little bit sore from what I did, maybe you did a bit too much. Um, and so I think it's really just um, looking back and seeing what you did and, and being cognizant and thinking about, you know, how you feel the next day. And really that's what recovery is. It's, you know, how do you, you know, it's very difficult to measure how recovered you are, if, if not impossible. So what we do is we look and we go, okay, how did we back up from something? And if you're finding that, you know, you, you, you're a little bit fatigued or, um, or you're a bit flat, then, you know, maybe you've done too much on your easy days. Um, and one thing, interesting studies, there's a couple of studies like this that have come out where they're people of, um, you know, they've planned hard days and they've planned easy days. And the hard days are as never as hard as they're planned. And the easy days are never as easy. They're always harder. So there tends to be this, we don't go as hard as we should, as we plan on our hard days and we um, go a little bit harder on our easy days. So um, that is a bit of a trend that we see is people doing more than they probably should on their, on their easy days. Yeah. I think I've spoken to a lot of running coaches that talk about this gray zone and you're never fully, if you, you hit that gray zone where you're training too hard or you're working at too hard of an intensity during your recovery days, you can never fully benefit the days where it's meant to be hard because you haven't recovered or you're not feeling as fresh. And so you're just destined yeah. to stay within this, this gray zone. Uh, I think that's uh, a trick and a trap that a lot of runners get into. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's, it's one of the hardest things to do is to, you know, have, you know, as I said, really my background was overtraining. And so what happens when people get, you know, they're struggling with training or they're feeling tired, they think, oh, I'm unfit or, oh, I've detrained. So I'm going to train a little bit harder. Right. And that's when they get in, that's when they get into a world of hurt. And when yep. what you really do is under, is people need to understand that we make the improvements, we get better in terms of adapting to our training during rest. Yeah. We don't, you know, we need the exercise, but we need the recovery to match it because that's where the muscles recover and the hormones, the good hormones are released and the repair and the regeneration. And if we don't give ourselves that opportunity to adequately recover, um, then we're probably not going to get the improvements in our performances and our ability to train that we should. Another message that's turned up multiple times in this uh, theme. So fantastic. And it carries me over to Paul's question he asks, is, is complete rest or a short, slow run better for an older runner after a, a day of a long run? Mm. What should they choose? Yeah. yeah, look, and again, it's very, very difficult to say because it is based on, you know, how often you're training during the week. And um, But I think what 
you know, my philosophy is, is that rest is not a bad thing. Um, and so if you are, you know, someone is an older runner and perhaps they're a little bit more prone to injury, um, then potentially uh, I think there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a rest day. And I think we need to encourage people to take more rest days. And as you say, it may, you know, this may help them be able to do a much better session the next day if they've actually had a proper a proper day off so look but I do know some people who do just like to get out and, and do something and it's good for their brain more than anything else um, rather than not exercising at all but low intensity or a day off um, there's certainly certainly nothing wrong with that and I just think people should listen to their body and see how they pull up and see how they recover and see how what their quality of effort is the next day you know maybe you can train much much better um, yep. the, the following day if you have a good rest day I think that's a good point because I do know as runners do get older, they need to, they don't bounce back as quick from mm -hmm. running sessions. And so maybe it's worth recalibrating or at least doing a trial and error, like mm. doing a complete rest day rather than your usual, just like recovery run to see if you do feel better. And yep. I can um, speak for this as well. The last couple of months, I usually work out most days. I'll, I won't run every day, but I'll do a gym session every like second day or something. And I've decided to combine some of those workouts. So I'll do a run and then I'll do a gym session on in one day and then use that second day for complete rest. And I've noticed mm -hmm. just within myself of having more complete rest days that my legs are feeling fresher for my mm -hmm. longer runs and for my harder runs. And yeah. so that's a routine that I've tried and I'm going to stick to because I feel a lot better from it. Whereas someone's mm -hmm someone's experience might be completely different, but at least you've tried the two things. You've tried the two methods and yes. see how you feel. Yeah. And, you know, even the most elite of elite athletes will likely have at least one day off a week. So, you know, it's not like having a day off is altogether a, a bad thing, but you're exactly right. Having, you know, the time between your last training session and the next one, that's when the, that's when the magic happens, right? So some people may need a little bit longer than others um, to, to, to recover. And yes, I definitely know as I age, it is not as easy to, uh, <laughs> to, to do, to bounce back in yep. short periods of time. <laughs> I wasn't going to ask this question, but since we were on the topic of like training in the heat earlier in the episode, I thought I'd, I'd just chuck this in. So Jacinta asks, what is the best way to recover after running or after runs in hot or humid conditions? Let's just say for an example, if you're training for a marathon up in Queensland or in summer and you have to do your weekend long run, what would that recovery look like? Yeah, I'd target two things. Uh, definitely your hydration. Um, and so, you know, that's a, it's a no-brainer and non-negotiable. So getting the fluids back in because you've probably lost a bit. Um, and then the second one would be finding ways to cool the body down. And there's lots of different options for that. Um, it could just be a cold shower. Um, now, cold shower doesn't work as well as an ice bath. <laughs> doesn't cool you down as much and as quick. Um, but a cold shower will, will cool you down. Uh, when we're, you know, sometimes, you know, working with, um, with high level athletes, you know, you could be in, you know, we've been in Beijing, we've been in Rio when you've got no equipment, but you've got, okay, you've got an ice, an ice towel um, and you've got a, a frozen drink um, and you could just cover the body in the frozen towel to, you know, the, the icy towel to, to cool your temperature. So finding ways in the, that practical world to cool yourself down. Is it a bath? Is it a shower? Is it the beach? Is it an ice towel? Um, because as I was saying earlier, the body, you know, having very, very high core body temperatures is is not good obviously it's it's something the body fights so if you're running with a high core temperature what happens is you either slow down or you stop when you get to a, a critical point um, and so what we want to do when we recover especially when we're in warm conditions is to cool that body um, very quickly so then you can start the rest of the recovery process so a combination of drinking something you know something good for your hydration something cold so you're cooling the core through your drink um, and then cooling your periphery so cooling the skin whether as I said shower bath whatever you can do that, that cools you down and generally speaking the faster you do that the faster you'll recover and the faster you'll actually feel good because yeah exercising in really hot conditions for most people um, unless you're really mad about it. Um, most people don't like it. 
Yeah. I think it's worth mentioning as well, when you talked about hydration, that comes under the the blanket of nutrition in our recovery pyramid as mm-hmm. well. So yep. we want to know the importance of hydration. That's like the second tier with the pyramid. That's mm-hmm. the only thing that's better than that is sleep and downtime. So very good <laughs> yeah. point. Um, anything else I need to ask? Oh yeah. When it comes to cooling yourself down in the webinar, you did mention if you're doing ice baths or if you're doing just cold water, there's a certain temperature which helps still aids recovery, but it's not cold enough that you're, you're wanting to get out after 10 seconds. What's that ideal temperature? Uh, yeah. And again, it's, it's very um, subjective. So some people like cold better than others. Um, but generally speaking, as I was saying earlier, anything below your skin temperature will cool you down. So we've done some research using 15 degree water, which is a bit uncomfortable. Um, but we've also done research with 20 degree water temperature. And that is 20 degrees is more tolerable for most people. And it just means that you stay in a bit longer. So, for example, ice baths, we recommend, you know, when you've built up to it, um, you know, about 10 to 15 minutes uh, in 10 to 15 degrees. Like that's pretty that's pretty up there in terms of being a pretty solid um, cold session. But if your water temperature is more like 20 to 25 degrees, you might just need to stay in there for about 20 minutes to get the benefits. So you'll still get the hydrostatic pressure benefits, but the cooling um, is not as much. So it doesn't mean, you know, you see the early days when we started looking at ice baths, you'd see all these pictures of people in a bath and it's just ice. Like that's, that's way, you know, that's not necessary. Like people think of ice baths as ice and that's not the case. You know, you a good temperature of water is nothing near frozen. Um, it's something more like 15, um, 15 degrees. And even as I said, up to 2025 is still going to do the job, just staying a bit longer. Yeah, good point. It's good to highlight that because when it comes to ice bath, that's what we call them. We call them oh, yeah, ice bath. And so people think there's just all ice. So yes, very good point. Yeah, yeah. And I was going to say, I now, you know, the technical term is is cold water immersion and that's a much better way of describing it because it is just cold water. It's not ice, but most people understand, you know, you say cold water immersion, they're like, what? I'm like, yeah, well, ice baths. And they go, oh, I know what you're talking about, yeah. even though it's not ice. Yeah. <laughs> um, higher on the pyramid, we had cryo chambers and infrared treatment or infrared recovery I just wanted to quickly brush on this one because I don't think a lot of recreational runners will be sorting this out for recovery, but where does the evidence lie and where does your suggestion lie when it comes to these methods? Yeah, look, there's a little bit of evidence for cryotherapy chambers. Uh, However, you know, one, where do you find them? And a lot of the ones now are single person. So, you know, if you've, I mean, it's okay, I guess, if you're a recreational athlete and you can access one, but for a lot of teams, like you can't get lots of people through in a single person, so they're not very practical. Um, But a little bit of evidence, we have to be very careful with them. There have been some deaths um, from people in cryotherapy chambers. Um, So we kind of stay a little bit, steer a little bit clear of them unless you're well supervised. Um, But yeah, a bit of evidence about um, cold water, uh, sorry, cryotherapy chambers when it comes to infrared they're getting really popular as a way of getting heat exposure um, in a more passive way they're not as uncomfortable as being like your typical type sauna Um, but infrared is um, had almost no evidence there's almost no studies that have actually looked at it in terms of a recovery strategy which again is why we're kind of like look until we have some good science why don't you especially with athletes why don't you do the things that he has a good science for um, and, uh, and and make that as your priority. So look, infrared, getting popular, um, people thinking about using heat in the recovery period as a bit of passive stress rather than pure recovery. Uh, but yeah, jury's out on that one until we get a bit, a bit more evidence. Okay. And then at the very tip of the pyramid, you just had like just generic fads. Are you able to list any fads that you've come across any ones that are quite popular that we think that we should just um yeah we should discuss um yeah i have to be a bit careful because i've said brand names before and i've got myself into a lot of trouble um however yeah we can we can dance around this a little bit um you know there's electrical stimulation devices um that i think you know they say they increase blood flow i'm not really sure they do sometimes you can 
provide electrical stimulation and you can actually give yourself muscle damage because it's such a unique contraction. Um, I know there's lots of different options now around uh, massage guns. Um, again, we don't have any evidence around them. I've seen some athletes hurt themselves using those the next day in terms of soreness. Um, and look, I wouldn't completely say they're a fad um, because we just haven't, you know, got there with the research yet, but there's a chance that some, and when I think of fad, I think of things that can actually, either just one do not work or two may actually do people harm. Um, and then do you remember those, um, oh, we used to call them placebo bracelets, but you know, the little magnetic bracelets that people used to wear, I don't know, it was probably about 20 years ago now, um, balance bracelets and magnetic bracelets and all these kinds of things that people used to get around in. And I think, you know, someone made a stack of cash out of that. And um, that's one thing I definitely consider as a, is a fad. Um, but yeah, things come and go and, and you can understand when people are time poor and they want a quick fix and someone comes and tells them that this particular type of brain stimulation will make you smarter and fitter and, you know, and they're very convincing. Um, but yeah, they, they tend to come and go pretty quickly if they don't have some good scientific backing at some point to them. Yeah, they can be very convincing and they can have some flashy ads and the placebo is pretty yep. powerful in some of those cases as well. Uh, but it's yep. good that we we know now we have this pyramid and we know mm-hmm. kind of what's at the top, what's at the bottom, what's important, what's not so important. And I'll just do a general recap as we sum up mm-hmm. this, this podcast episode. So the very base of the pyramid, the most important is definitely your sleep and downtime. So unwinding psychologically, we have your nutrition, hydration as the next level. Then the third level, we have water immersion and all this, the the practical takeaways we took, took with that. Next from that, we have compression, active recovery and stretch, whatever feels good. Uh, Higher than that is massage. And then towards the tip of the pyramid, we have the ones that aren't evidence-based. So we've got the cryo chambers, the infrared, and there was Firefly. What's Firefly in in the... <laughs> yeah. Ma- yeah, yeah, that's one of the sort of electrical muscle stimulation type devices. Ah, I see. Um, again, yeah. And then we had all the fads that we've just described. So beautiful. Make sure that we're ticking the boxes at the base of the pyramid before we mm-hmm. start to prioritize uh, to higher top. up. Mm-hmm. Once you've ticked all the boxes in the, in the pyramid... In the, in the lower bases, then you can start, you know, almost trial and erroring a couple of things that higher up on that pyramid. And mm-hmm. it's, a, it's great to illustrate as well the, what we talked about on previous episodes around the physical stress and the psychological stress as mm-hmm. both components for recovery. We need to make sure that we're addressing both of those for recovery. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of the treatment methods that we talked about today does help that psychological component as well, helps to psychologically de-stress and psychologically recover, which is huge importance. And I think the podcast does illustrate um, the importance of that as well. Are there any final words, take-home messages that we haven't necessarily discussed or things that we need to highlight in today's discussion before we wrap up? Uh, Look, I think we've covered most of the, you know, the important sort of recovery strategies, but yeah, just to reinforce um, what you sort of, what you said there at the end, which is that, you know, we are actually early days in terms of the recovery science. So trial and error and individuality and knowing what works for you and just paying a little bit of attention to, you know, even around sleep, you know, some people get by with seven, some need eight, some need nine, just pay attention to what, um, how, what makes you feel the best. Um, and sometimes we get so busy in our lives, we don't get the chance to reflect and, and to think back about what things are working under what situations for us. So I think, yeah, I can come out and give all the advice um, uh, and, and some recommendations, but yeah, it's really think, uh, think things through on an individual basis and what works for you and what you've tried and, and no harm in, tr- in, in trying things. And, you know, if you absolutely love it, go for it. If you have, I know people absolutely hate ice baths, you know, just find, find things that are going to work for you. Yeah, definitely. And if it's causing more psychological stress to think about doing these things, that's probably not the best for you anyway. As we wrap up, Shona, is there any like social media handles or anywhere people can go if they want to learn more about you and your content? Yeah. Uh, Twitter is probably the, the main one that I do, which is just, um, I'm just at Shona Helson. Um, I think I'm the only Shona Halson, so it should be easy enough to find. Um, but yeah, we I'm usually, uh, you know, 
tweeting about some of our new research or some upcoming upcoming opportunities or uh, we're doing a lot of infographics and, and those kinds of things now to get our message across in a simple way. So there's definitely, um, uh, hopefully there'll be some useful stuff um, that's floating around on, that, on, on Twitter. Brilliant. Thanks for coming on. Like I said at the start, you're the very, very highly regarded. You're the top of the spear with when it comes to researching this sort of stuff and everyone highly recommends you. So I want to thank you for taking the time to come on and share your knowledge and um, share a lot of information that a lot of runners need to know. So thanks once again. Great. No, thanks, Brody. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Run Smarter podcast. I hope you can see the impact this content has on your future running. If you appreciate the mission this podcast is creating, it would mean a lot to me if you submit a rating and review. If you want to continue expanding your knowledge, please subscribe to the podcast and get instant notifications when a new episode comes out. If you want to learn quicker, then join our Facebook group by searching the podcast title. If you want to take your learning to the next step, including injury prevention principles, injury-specific insights, and modules to boost your running performance, then head to our website by searching runsmarter.online and jump into our Run Smarter online course. Once again, thank you for listening and becoming a Run Smarter Scholar. And remember, knowledge is power.